0: welcome to world war one centennial news episode number 127 this podcast is about then what was happening a hundred years ago in the aftermath of world war one and it's also about now how world war one is being remembered and commemorated written about and discussed learned and taught but most important it's about why and how we're never going to let those events fall back into the mists of obscurity so join us as we explore the many facets of World War I, both then and now. The final World War I issue of the Stars and Stripes newspaper publishes this week a hundred years ago, and we're dedicating this episode to this iconic journal. This includes a special overview report developed by Dave Kramer. Insights from Robert H. Reed, the Senior Managing Editor of the Stars and Stripes, and an introduction to the National Stars and Stripes Museum and Library by Laura Meyer and Sue Mayo. Mike Schuster digs into the shocked response of the Germans on receiving the peace treaty terms. Also this week, it's time for the top selection from Dr. Edward Lengel's 10-part countdown of his picks of the best World War I memoirs. Find out what it is on today's show. We're joined by author Colonel Greg Eanes, U.S. Air Force retired, who's written a book on U.S. World War I prisoners of war. And finally, Keith Coley, the man behind the mobile World War I museum, joins us. And here's a kick. Keith joined us just over 100 episodes ago in episode number 26, around the 4th of July of 2017, at the start of his amazing journey moving this World War I mobile museum around the country this week on World War One Centennial News, the Doughboy podcast, brought to you by the U.S. World War One Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, the Star Foundation, and the Doughboy Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission, and your host. Welcome to the show. World War I was the war that changed the world. In America, the transformations were profound and deep. Economic, social, military, technological, political, and more. Over the past 127 weeks, we've journeyed the paths of those transformations. Some of them were dramatic and shocking, surprising, even draconian and scary as all get-up in terms of how far this country bent personal freedoms. So a century ago this week, eight months after the armistice that ended the fighting on the Western Front, we're in the aftermath of the war that changed the world. Not only are nations meeting in Paris to try to hash out a new global order, and more on that later, but millions of soldiers are being demobilized. It's been shocking and amazing to learn how America very undemocratically nationalized most key industries, how we curtailed many freedoms and imposed many draconian controls on our country. Well, thankfully, these controls are being lifted and we're being reintegrated into a new commercial world. Personal rights and freedoms suppressed during the war are being returned. Issues like a woman's right to have an equal voice in the governance of our nation are being reconsidered. The ship of America's constitutional democracy is trying to right itself, to wrench itself from one footing to another, in large and small ways, in both profound and painful ways. So this week's theme is a part of that. And most interesting in that it's not earth-shaking or huge, but very indicative of America's return to normalcy. On June 13, 1919, exactly two years to the day after General Pershing arrived in France with the first units of the AEF, the last World War I-era issue of the Stars and Stripes newspapers published. Dateline, June 13, 1919. The headline of the Stars and Stripes newspaper reads, Stars and Stripes is hauled down in this issue. Stars and Stripes is actually born more than a half a century before World War I. It has its origins in the Civil War, when in 1861, some Union soldiers from Illinois take over Bloomfield, Missouri from the southern state's militia. Well, it happens that they find an intact printing press in an empty newspaper office. While they were in town, they print six issues of a single sheet news flyer for the Union soldiers in that area, for the soldiers, by the soldiers. And one can only guess that the chosen name, the Stars and Stripes, was in specific contrast to the Southern Stars and Bars or the 1861-designated Confederate battle flag. So they called it the Stars and Stripes. Then it went away for 57 years. In February of 1918, as the Doughboys gather in larger and larger numbers in Europe, the Stars and Stripes newspaper is resurrected and issues 71 weekly editions. Now, general John J. Pershing, who supported and greenlights the project, assures the average soldier reading it that it is your paper. Pershing makes it clear in a communique to all officers from general headquarters. Quote, The style and policy of the Stars and Stripes is not to be interfered with. Unquote. As it was at its inception, the newspaper is by enlisted men four enlisted men with an independent and often irreverent, wry, and funny tone. With war news, home front news, comics, and with an attitude, the weekly Stars and Stripes provides something that the Doughboys can truly call their own. In April of 2018, we interviewed Robert H. Reed, the senior managing editor of the paper, and I asked him about the paper's reemergence in 1918.
1: The idea for Stars and Stripes grew out of concerns by the ADF command about troop morale once American soldiers were actually sent to France in 1917. You know, they went to a country that had already been at war for three years. There were no nice, fresh barracks waiting for them, especially the closer you got to the front. And the winter of 1917 was particularly harsh, cold and rainy. Mail service was very erratic. And many, if not most, of the enlisted men particularly had never been away from home before. So their lives were a mixture of lonely and bone-crushing boredom or abject terror. So the command was desperately looking for ways to boost morale. Enter this one young staff officer and former newspaper man named Guy Veskineski. He had traveled around the AEF, talked to officers and enlisted men, and came up with an idea for a soldier's newspaper as a morale booster. So he formally pitched the idea in November 1917. General Pershing signed off on the proposal and the paper rolled out two months later. Now,
0: back in 1918, when it launches, before the year's out, circulation reaches a half a million. All the more remarkable because it's not free, it's a paid subscription. Again, Robert H. Reed.
1: The people who founded the paper looked at the experience of the British and the French, whose uh, Troop papers had fallen flat, and they decided one of the things was that these papers were given away free, so the soldiers assumed it was command propaganda. So they wouldn't even bother to read it. So they thought, you know, if we make them pay for it, they'll take it more seriously they'll at least look at it. As an incentive, though, to get people to subscribe, it was proposed that the profits from subscriptions would go to subsidized tobacco rations. So the more people in a unit who bought the paper, the more tobacco was available. (laughs) They also decided to accept paid ads, first from American companies, later from British and French. But they had sort of strict rules. No political advertisements, no advertisements from politicians back home saying, we support the troops. The idea being, if you support us, you know, enlist and come over here. (laughs) But they did have things like ads for Boston Garters or Wrigley's Chewing Gum, Fatima Cigarettes, and razor blades were a big one. One of my favorite stories from the old 1918 paper was about mobile dental clinics that the American command had put together, and they were moving around the front giving dental care to soldiers. The first paragraph of the story began, The latest American atrocity, Dash, a dentist office on wheels. (laughs) He went on to describe the clinics as movable torture chambers. (laughs) And And he said that about the only good thing you could say about it was if you needed a laugh, there was plenty of laughing gas available.
0: Because it had its origins in Bloomfield, Missouri, a group of people there gathered the resources to honor the history of the paper and they created the National Stars and Stripes Museum and Library, a nonprofit educational institution dedicated to collecting, documenting, and preserving materials related to the creation and continued history of the Stars and Stripes. I recently spoke with Laura Meyer, the curator, and Sue Mayo, the museum librarian.
2: During the Civil War, Soldiers from Illinois came into our town and printed the first paper known as the Stars and Stripes. There were a couple others during the Civil War, but the first one was printed here by 10 Union soldiers from Illinois. One of the men involved in the publication was from Carmine, Illinois, and he had a young high school boy that worked for him, and his name was Guy Beskinski. And he became the first editor and the first officer in charge of the World War One issues. There was a definite connection between the Civil War paper and the one that was printed in Paris, France. John J. Pershing was very instrumental in getting the World War One issues started. He's a native Missourian, and he indicated that the paper was written by and for servicemen, and was created to improve the morale and provide unity within the armed forces. Some of the editors went on to do really interesting things too. Like Harold Ross was one of the main editors of the Stars and Stripes World War One, and then later he became the editor of the New Yorker magazine. Alexander Walcott worked for the World War I Stars and Stripes, and he became a drama critic for the New York Times. Grantland Rice wrote for the paper. He's the one that said, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you play the game.
0: We also talked about how then it evolved into a museum. In
2: 1988, Colonel Jeff Baker was here to present the Memorial Day speech at our memorial at the courthouse. He was sitting on our patio after the event, and my husband, Jim Mayo, mentioned that there needed to be a museum for the newspaper, the Stars and Stripes. And Jeff Baker immediately said, yes, and it needs to be right here in Bloomfield. The people who had worked for the newspaper, they got behind the idea, and several of them donated money. So that was kind of the initial drive to get the museum completed.
0: So this week, a hundred years ago, The Stars and Stripes publishes its last issue of this particular run. (laughs) They'll be back soon enough. Here are some quotes from the editors excerpted from that final edition. Quote, Well, to begin with, The Stars and Stripes is, as far as we know, the only subdivision of the AEF that does not claim to have won the war single handed We're content to rest on the appraisal of Major General Harbour, who stated that the newspaper, quote, played an important part in the highly organized business that we carried out to defeat Germany. We think that with all the combat divisions, save the Third Army, well out of France, we are violating no confidence in proclaiming the war is over. And so we feel that it's time for this weekly to cease fire. Goodbye. After its successful run in World War I, Stars and Stripes is revived for the American troops of World War II. In fact, Egbert White, a young private and reporter for the paper in World War I, would go on to a successful publishing career and then re-enlist for World War II to become a senior advisor to the Mediterranean edition of the Stars and Stripes. Through Korea vietnam and the gulf wars stars and stripes continues to provide information and entertainment to american servicemen and servicewomen to this very day ready for a little more from the paris peace conference hundred years ago this week mike schuster former npr correspondent and curator for the great war project blog takes a closer look at the corner germany and indeed everyone has been put into by the paris peace treaty and the reactions as the peace treaty demands are finally and officially delivered to the Germans. Mike, I was surprised that the dissent about the treaty comes not only from the Germans, but even from the rest of the U.S.
3: delegations
0: and the British.
3: It does, Theo, that's right. So the headlines read, The Germans in shock, stab in the back. There will be intense bitterness, hate, and desperation. Down to the last three days, are the Allies bluffing? And this is special to the Great War Project. The Germans get their version of the peace treaty in May, a century ago, and they are shocked. Here are just a few of the terms. The borders of Germany are redrawn. It loses 13% of its territory, 10% of its population. Germany alone is made to disarm. The reaction in Germany is shock. After all, historian Margaret Macmillan writes of the German response, had Germany really lost the war? Since the armistice, the military and its sympathizers had been busy laying the foundations of the the stab-in-the-back theory, that Germany had been defeated not on the battlefield, but by treachery at home. Why should Germany alone be made to disarm? Why should Germany be the only country to take responsibility for the Great War? Most Germans still view the outbreak of hostilities in 1914 as a necessary defense against the threat from the barbaric Slavs to the east. Said the German chancellor, the treaty is completely unacceptable. The Germans lay responsibility for this terrible circumstance on Woodrow Wilson personally. What had happened to Wilson's promises, they ask? Well, I'll give you some open diplomacy, said the German defense minister to an American journalist. You Americans, go back home and bury yourself with your Wilson. Where Wilson had been seen as Germany's savior, he overnight becomes the wicked hypocrite. Writes one observer, when the Germans see the treaty's terms in cold print, there will be intense bitterness, hate, and desperation. Even Secretary of State Lansing levels sharp criticism of the treaty. The terms of the peace appear immeasurably harsh and humiliating, while many of them are incapable of performance. This isn't a treaty of peace. Some in the American delegation resign in protest. Their letters of resignation, writes historian Macmillan, spoke of disillusionment, of how Wilson's great principles and the idealism of the United States had been sacrificed to serve the interests of the greedy Europeans. Similar views bubble up in the British delegation as well. The British pardoned themselves for having created an imperialistic peace. They blame the Italians and the French, Macmillan reports. It turns out that the British PM Lloyd George is rethinking the whole treaty. He was well aware, writes Macmillan, that in the long run, it was not in Britain's best interests to have a weak and possibly revolutionary Germany in the heart of Europe. The British delegation meets on June 1st, a century ago. Many of the voices raised speak of the menace of the treaty in its present form. Many argue that the treaty must be rewritten. Lloyd George tells the delegation that he can't sign the treaty in its present form. Nor can he agree to attack Germany once again if the current deadline expires without agreement. Wilson and the French PM, Clemenceau, were horrified at the prospect of redoing the work that had been so painfully accomplished. Nevertheless, Wilson is not prepared to budge. On June 16th, a century ago, after two weeks of further acrimonious negotiation, the Germans are informed that now they face a deadline of three days. Are the allies bluffing? And that's the news from the Great War Project these days, a century ago in the Great War.
0: Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. As we promised at the top of the show, it's time for Dr. Edward Lengel's top pick from his 10-week countdown of the best memoirs of World War I, which he curated from the many, many hundreds of published personal accounts that he's read in his research. The top pick selection goes to Irishman John Lucy for A Devil in the Drum.
4: I first became interested in World War I almost 30 years ago. My route of entry was through the war's great memoirs, many of which I've described in this series. This reflects my approach to military history, which has always been less about equipment and tactics than the human experience of warfare, inspired in part by the great British historian John Keegan's seminal work, The Face of Battle. To me, one of the most fascinating aspects of World War I is how men and women with no frame of reference for understanding modern industrialized warfare faced and processed the intense experiences they underwent in 1914 to 1918. Since beginning my almost obsessive jaunt through World War I personal accounts, I've read many hundreds of published and unpublished volumes of memoirs, diaries, and collected letters written by individuals from all over the world. Through all of them, I keep coming back to one deeply personal and gently introspective account by a poor Irish boy who served with his brother in the British Expeditionary Force of 1914. That book, There's a Devil in the Drum by John Lucy, published in 1938, stands number one on my list of the top 10 personal accounts of World War I. In 1914, Ireland remained under British rule but trembled on the brink of civil war. It probably would have slid into internal chaos that year thanks to the home rule crisis had not the outbreak of World War I intervened. For a time, all Irishmen, on the surface anyway, stood side by side with the British in their determination to fight imperial Germany. John Lucy didn't care about politics, and he certainly had little interest in what Germany was up to in Belgium. Two years earlier, he and his brother had joined the British Army simply as a way to escape poverty in Cork, Ireland. By 1914, they were both members of the Royal Irish Rifles, and were among the first sent to France and then Belgium to resist the German invasion. John and Dennis Lucy fought at Mons, Le Coteau, and all of the BEF's other major battles in 1914 but only one of them made it out alive. John Lucy never forgot the last time he saw his brother, as he wrote. My brother's platoon suddenly got the order, unheard by me, and up went the men onto the open grassland, led by their officer. Dennis went ahead, abreast with this officer, too far in front of his section, I thought. He carried his rifle with a bayonet fixed threateningly at the high port and presented a good picture of the young leader going into battle. I wished he had not gone so far forward. Not quite necessary for a lance corporal. He was exposing himself unnecessarily and would be one of the first to be shot at. I raised myself high over the parapet of our cliff and shouted at him, take care of yourself. And I blushed at such a display of anxiety in the presence of my comrades. My brother steadied a moment in a stride which was beginning to break into a steady run forward. And looking back over his shoulder, winked reassuringly at me. The beggar would wink. Forward he won, and out of my sight forever. John Lucy never quite managed to leave the military life. After a long convalescence in 1916, he returned to the front in 1917, a commissioned officer, participating in Passchendaele and other battles, until he was severely wounded by a German grenade in December 1917. He remained in the British Army for several years after the war ended, but after a stint in Ireland as a businessman and journalist, he rejoined the British Army in 1940 to see service in World War II. He attained the rank of lieutenant colonel before he passed away in 1962. There's a Devil in the Drum cannot claim to stand among the great works of world literature. In its authenticity and humanity, however, it ranks among the very best first-hand accounts written about any war.
0: This not only wraps up Ed's top 10 picks, but this is also where our good friend Dr. Edward Langle moves on to focus on new historic subjects and begins to focus his work and his blog, A Storyteller Hiking Through History, on non-World War I subjects. So please join me, the entire podcast team, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, and all of our listeners in thanking Ed for his incredible insights and perspectives that he's so generously shared with us for all of these past 18 months. Ed, thank you. We have links to Ed's posts and his author's website in our podcast notes. With that, it's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. During this part of the podcast, we explore how World War I is being remembered and commemorated today. Here's where we spotlight the ongoing remembrances, commemorations, and activities surrounding World War I and World War I themes. In commission news, we didn't know it would be this popular. But the first 5,000 digital copies of the World War I Genealogy Research Guide got snapped up much faster than we expected. The good news is that today we've made arrangements to be able to offer an additional 5,000 units for free. What are we talking about? Well, the World War I Genealogy Research Guide is this wonderful 100-page resource that helps you trace your ancestors who served in World War I. It includes American military and non-combatant ancestors, and there's even a chapter on Canadians who served, because a lot of Americans served with Canada. We've made arrangements with author Deborah Dudek to offer her wonderful guide in digital form as an updated edition with a foreword by Colonel Gerald York, grandson of Medal of Honor recipient Alvin York. In its digital form, it also features over 250 live links to resources and tools to help you uncover your family's World War I heritage. And it's available at ww one ccorg forward slash guide, all lowercase. The free copies are courtesy of the Doughboy Foundation, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Now, after the free download limit has been reached, this very fine resource can still be purchased on Amazon in print form. Now, bottom line is, get your copy free while it's still available at one ccorg forward slash guide, or follow the link in the podcast notes. For our Remembering Veterans section this week, we have a subject that we've not really delved into much in the past. The experience of Doughboys as POWs, prisoners of war during World War I. With us is author Colonel Greg Eans, U.S. Air Force retired, who's published a book called Captured Not Conquered: The American POW Experience in World War One. Colonel Eans, welcome to the podcast.
5: Well, thank you, Tao. Happy to be here. Colonel, what was
0: your own military experience, and how did that lead to a career as an author? I think you've written somewhere around 15 books on military history, right?
5: I enlisted at the age of 17 into the United States Navy as an intelligence specialist. That led to a job at Special Operations Command in the early 80s, and I served as an evasion and escape intelligence non-commissioned officer, and that led to a job as a Navy SEER instructor, which is survival, evasion, resistance, and escape where we taught high-risk personnel, aviators, SEALs, and so forth, how to escape and evade, and how to survive POW captivity. I got a commission in the Air Force in 86, ended up as an intelligence officer, serving as the evasion and escape officer for Special Operations Command Central during Operations Desert Shield and Storm. And then uh, I was recalled after 9-11, to serve as the deputy chief of the intelligence community POW-MIA analytics cell in Washington, D.C., and that led to my assignment as the chief of the Scott Spiker investigation in 2003-2004. Uh, to 2004.
0: Moving on to the POWs of World War I, when most people think about the treatment of prisoners of war, they think of the Geneva Convention. That was in time for World War II, but what were the standards for treatment for prisoners in World War I?
5: Let's talk about Geneva real quick. That actually came into being in 1864, but not relative to POWs. The main effort was the Hague Conventions of 1899, which were updated in 1907. There was one other document that was important from a U.S. perspective, and that was the 1785 Treaty of Amity and Commerce between the United States and the Kingdom of Prussia. It was signed by Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Article 24 required humane treatment for POWs, and believe it or not, This treaty was actually cited in some of the official paperwork at the time as we entered the war and started discussing the treatment of POWs. Now, German doctrine was based on the Hague Convention, and their military doctrine actually talked about the proper treatment of POWs and called for it consistent with treaty obligations. And that is what officially got it their treatment of POWs.
0: Now, How did doughboys typically find themselves becoming POWs? Captured during maneuvers or how?
5: You kind of fall into three categories. You've got your nautical personnel, which include merchant seamen. There were over 200 American merchant seamen that were prisoners of war. Some of their ships were sunk by submarines. Some of them were captured by merchant raiders, such as the Vova. And they would actually live on these German ships on the merchant raiders until they finally pulled into port. Airmen were shot down, and oftentimes, though, their planes broke down. They had engine trouble and were forced to land in enemy territory. And a couple of occasions, they landed in the wrong location. Most of your combat infantrymen, though, your doughboys, as you say, were captured in trench raids or during the major German offensives.
0: We weren't engaged for that long of a period of time. So about how many American prisoners of war were there during the war?
5: Well, the official U.S. figure as of 2005 is 4,120 Americans were prisoners of war. That number though can be bumped up quite a bit. There were about 70 American doughboys that were captured on the battlefield yet managed to escape while they were in no man's land or in the German trenches and before they actually entered the POW system. So they weren't ever recorded anywhere. They actually count as POWs though if you look at today's guidelines.
0: Was the prisoner of war treatment generally humane or was it tough?
5: Anytime you're a POW, it's tough. I don't care how good the conditions are. But generally speaking, the Americans were well-treated. The first guys had a tough time because the Germans didn't quite know how to treat them. They didn't treat them any different than they did the Russians, for example. And the first two batches actually ended up at a place called Tuchel in the middle of winter, up in northern Germany, under the most horrendous conditions. But once an investigation was conducted by the International Red Cross with the Ministry of War personnel, there was an effort by both the YMCA and the Red Cross to get the Americans concentrated at American-only camps. So that also helped their treatment, if you will.
0: Were there differences in how the two sides dealt with their POWs, the German POWs versus the Allies?
5: As a matter of policy, they observed the rules of war. Now, that's a policy statement. There were cases of individual abuse, however, particularly with the early American captors. There was one gentleman by the name of Hoyt Decker in the 16th Infantry. Hoyt Decker was among the first group of POWs taken on the 4th of 1917. During the battle, he suffered a grenade concussion and it knocked out part of his eye. It actually knocked it out of the socket so the socket was hanging on his cheek. As the prisoners got pushed into a German bunker, a German officer came in, saw this cake of mud on the guy's cheek, and he pulled up and ripped it off. He ripped his eye out, basically. But of course, Decker, the shock of it, he just dropped to the ground and his sergeant, Edgar Halliburton, who wrote a memoir, actually a very good memoir, I think, he cited it as an atrocity. Decker finally spoke out about it. And the way he talked was that it was more of an accident than an intentional action. And that as a result of that, what he ended up doing was saying that he got good medical care when they got him to the rear. And he actually was complimentary of the medical care he got.
0: So, Colonel, in closing, how would you summarize the key ideas that our listeners should remember as a takeaway about American Doughboy POWs' experiences in World War I?
5: Once you get into their stories and start putting it all together, these young men were just as heroic as their counterparts in other conflicts. Over 70 Doughboys made battlefield escapes and another 45 or so made successful escapes from POW camps including a great escape from Billingdon, in which about 13 men tried to get out, even though it was supported by about 50 others. They demonstrated POW leadership and resistance techniques before these things were even taught in the military schoolhouses. These POWs literally wrote the book or the military doctrine that was institutionalized after World War II, and many of the same lessons that we teach today at our SEER schools. Well, Colonel, thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you.
0: Colonel Greg Eanes, U.S. Air Force retired, is the author of Captured, Not Conquered, the American POW experience in World War I. The book is available on Amazon, and we have links for you in the podcast notes. For commemorating World War I, Keith Coley has a passion for World War I veterans and its history. I first met Keith when I was the program manager for 100 Cities, 100 Memorials, a matching grant challenge where the Pritzker Military Museum and Library and the Commission put together a matching grant program to promote the rediscovery and restoration of World War I memorials around the country. At the time, Keith had produced a simple but really poignant smartphone video about going to a local cemetery and discovering the neglected graves. So I reached out to Keith about this really remarkable, simple, but poignant video. And that's when I learned that Keith had also created a mobile World War I museum. Now, he joined us on the podcast in June of 2017, over 100 episodes ago, when he was getting ready to take his museum around the country for the centennial period. It's a really interesting story. And Keith joins us again for an epilogue of that journey of over two years. Keith, welcome. It's great to speak with you again.
6: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Keith, before we explore the journey over the past 100 weeks about a war that happened a 100 years ago, can you describe the Traveling Museum for our listeners? What is it? How did it get started? What's the experience when I go to it?
6: I work with patients in hospice that have Alzheimer's and dementia. And one of my patients was a World War II vet. Couldn't unfortunately remember yesterday but he could take me back to conversations with his father who was in World War I. So with that information, I thought maybe I could delve in deeper with him. If I went home and did some research on World War One. I, I did. It stuck. And before you knew it, we were going back and forth in amazing conversations about World War One. And then with Alzheimer's patients, the more of the senses that you can engage at one time, the better reaction you're gonna get. So I went online and I ordered a shovel from Bulgaria out of World War One. And when I placed it into his hands, he actually began crying. And just following that, the stories just flowed and flowed. And so I thought to myself, working with this generation, I thought maybe we can make this bigger. Maybe we can reach out and delve into the war at a greater level. So I decided to go to Kansas City, and of course, go to the, the most amazing World War I museum in the world. And when I left there, I thought, we've got to somehow get this to where our seniors can see it. And that's when the traveling museum began.
0: That's a great story. I actually hadn't heard that. Keith, about your journey over the past years, I saw your tour schedule online. It's really impressive. Where all did you take the museum and about how many people did you reach?
6: We've been underground in a World War II bunker in Delaware. We've been to air shows. We've been to state fairs. We've been to memory care units. We've been to independent living units. We've been to schools. Basically, it was designed, of course, to reach out and set up where people live, especially where our seniors and veterans live. So we actually take it. We set it up where they live, gives them the opportunity to come and go ask questions, tell stories of their own. The biggest challenge for this is having enough time. Everybody wants to tell their story, and it creates the most amazing atmosphere you can imagine.
0: How many stops do you think you've made in the last few years?
6: Wow, stops? I'm not really sure, but I can tell you that we are about to break 200,000 visitors over the last two years. And we're really proud that this has been able to do that. And we just hope that it just continues to grow.
0: You should be proud. That's pretty awesome. That really is. You just said what the biggest challenge is, is the time, but what was your biggest challenge in doing this and pulling this off?
6: In the middle of it all, I had an accident and I was unable to walk and I was in a wheelchair for a year. And I think that right there, while being a great challenge, and yeah, it was a bump in the road, it gave me the opportunity to create and build the museum. Every single piece that I put into the museum comes with a story. So you're not just looking at an artifact when you get there or reading a plaque or you're going to get the story behind it. We've got a gentleman, Mr. Pappy Stevens. You've got to come and meet Pappy a hero from World War I that was a runner. And if you know much about the runners in World War I, most of them didn't survive. And this gentleman did. He was just a little bitty guy, 24-inch waist, five foot one, which you like to joke about the extra inch. But when you come to the museum, you're going to see his uniform, his belongings, all of his things, but you're going to get his story too. And that's the way it is through the entire museum.
0: Well, you almost just answered my second question, which was what was the biggest reward?
6: We did a show down in Texas, and we had veterans, seniors, but we were also busing in school students, and we had a class from the high school. They were seniors. And I looked over during the tour, and I saw one of the gentlemen with tears in his eyes. I just said, sir, do you mind if I ask, what's bringing the tears? And he said, well, that razor right there on that table he said that the only time his dad talked about World War I is when he was teaching him to shave with that razor. And by the time he got done telling that story, there wasn't a dry eye. And then in the back, a hand went up. And it was one of the seniors from the high school that said, sir, may I ask you a question about World War II? He answered the question, and before you knew it, the seniors, the veterans, and the high school seniors, they were all interacting, and when that session was over, that gentleman came over to me and put his arm around me and said, I never thought I'd get to tell my story ever again, and that's why we're doing the museum.
1: Well, Keith, I've always
0: appreciated your passion. You're a great guy. What happens next? Do you find a permanent home? Do you keep doing it? What do you think?
6: We're booked into 2020. We even got a request for 2021. And we're taking it to the National Social Studies Conference this November in Austin, Texas. There's supposed to be 10,000 high school teachers from all over the country. And we're going to set the museum up there, hoping to introduce it and get it into our school system to give our students the opportunity to thank our veterans at a different level while paying respect to a forgotten war. That's great.
0: From my first exposure to you to today, you've always been so passionate about bringing the story to America. The only thing I can say is thank you from everybody.
6: Well, I'd like to say thank you to all of the people that have volunteered. Oh my gosh, we couldn't do this without the volunteers to set up and tear down The sponsors that step up to the game, the facilities that go the extra mile. I mean, I just got a picture yesterday mailed to me. One of the facilities actually made monster postcards and sent them out to thousands of people. And so this is truly a community event, and we want everybody in America to see it. We're not going to stop traveling until nobody else wants it.
0: (laughs) Keith, thank you so much. Keith Coley and his mobile World War One museum can be found at www the number one, mobilemuseum.com, all one word. And we have links for you in the podcast notes. And that brings us to articles and posts, where we select stories you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. The Dispatch points to online articles with summary paragraphs and links, providing a rich resource for World War I news and activities. Here are some of the selections from our current issue. Our first story, National History Day World War I Webinar Series Scholarships Available. The submission deadline is July 30th. Free tuition and credit is available for two teachers from every National History Day affiliate. Through this program, teachers can earn a certificate of professional development hours for three graduate extension credit units from the University of San Diego. Applications for the scholarships for this will be accepted through July 30, 2019. As one of the commission's education partners, National History Day has created resources to offer different perspectives on the war, engage students with unique primary sources, and remember those who served and sacrificed as part of the World War I effort. Park University to host Valor Medal Review Program at National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. On Wednesday, June 19, Park University will host a program, From Kansas City to Washington, D.C., World War I Valor Medal Review. The program will be presented at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. It starts at 6.30 p.m. Admission to the event is open to the public and free, but attendees have to RSVP. In mid-April, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and Park University announced that they were spearheading the effort of a Congress-led systematic review of minority veterans who served in World War I, who may have been overlooked or denied the Medal of Honor due to race. Teaching the Great War 100 Years Later When Chris Davis was asked by the history department at University of North Carolina at Greensboro, what course would you like to teach for the fall of 2018? There was no hesitation in his response. He wanted to teach a course that gave World War I its due. Chris got his wish. Not only would he be teaching a course on his favorite topic, World War I, but this course would coincide with the centennial of the war's end. A new online exhibition the Volunteers, America Joins World War I. This exhibition examines the stories of the young American men and women who transformed the meaning of volunteerism in World War I. Prompted by altruism, personal ambition, a search for adventure, or the hope for an Allied-led redemption of a devastated Europe, these American volunteers engaged in the war before the United States entered the conflict. World War I Memorial in Covington, Ohio honors over 250 local men who served. The 2019 Memorial Day festivities were like no others as the village of Covington in Ohio honored those residents who fought in World War I with a monument. Nearly 300 Covington servicemen fought in World War I with the United States Army's 148th Infantry Regiment in battles to liberate Belgium in 1918. And another new World War I monument, World War I veterans will not be forgotten as new monument is revealed in Jefferson County, Georgia. The names of 26 Jefferson County, Georgia men who gave their lives in service to their country during World War I were revealed, etched in granite, in a newly redesigned Veterans Plaza on the county courthouse lawn on June 6 of this year. The World War One monument is part of a veterans' plaza originally started last year by Dr. Lamar Veach, a Jefferson County native and a member of the Georgia World War I Centennial Commission, who brought the idea of a World War I memorial to the Board of Commissioners and Historical Society. How Vaccines and Vigilance Could Have Stopped the World War I Pandemic Just one century ago, the world was in the grips of one of the deadliest pandemics in history. Tens of millions of people, an estimated 3% of the world's population was killed by the Spanish flu pandemic that swept across the planet, costing considerably more lives than World War I itself. Now, while much has changed since this chapter of the 20th century ended, the story of the Spanish flu still holds a valuable lesson not to underestimate the danger of the pathogens that we share the earth with access the full-length version of all these amazing stories and more through the summary paragraphs and links that you'll find in our weekly dispatch newsletter. It's our short and easy guide with lots of World War I news and information. Subscribe to this wonderful free weekly guide at www.cc.org forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 127 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our great guests, talented crew, and our supporters, including Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. A special thanks to Dr. Edward Lengel, author and speaker. Robert H. Reed, the senior managing editor of The Stars and Stripes. Laura Myers and Sue Mayo from the National Stars and Stripes Museum and Library. Author, Colonel Greg Eanes, U.S. Air Force, retired. Keith Coley of the Mobile World War I Museum. Thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team. Katz Laszlo, the line producer for the show. Dave Kramer for his special report on the Stars and Stripes. J.L. Michaud for research and web support. And I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs have been to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We have brought the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and the public. We have helped to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country, and yet to be completed, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as our other sponsors, the Star Foundation and the Doughboy Foundation. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org forward cn, as in Charlie Nancy. You'll find World War One Centennial News in all the places you get your podcasts, even YouTube, asking Siri, or using your smart speaker by saying "Play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial thank you for joining us. And don't forget to keep the story alive for America by helping us build the National World War I Memorial in Washington. Just text the letters WWI or WW1 to the phone number 91999 to make a contribution. We need your help.
5: Thank you for listening. So long.